Well, sections like this uh, make a lot of people feel, well, gosh, you know, well, nowadays, we know better than this, don't we? We know better than the people who uh, were living back then who wrote the Bible. And the concern goes something like, um, in the Old Testament, there's no objection to having slaves. In the New Testament, Christians are commanded not to free their slaves, but rather slaves are told to submit, like we've just read here, like that one read for us. And we know slavery is wrong. So it is that the Bible text seems to approve of something that we know is wrong, therefore we know better than the Bible. Seems logical, doesn't it? So two parts to the talk this morning. We're going to get to these verses in the second part, but the first part, before we do, I want us to look a little bit more closely at how the Bible talks about slavery. And a really important uh, starting point is to realise the idea behind the Hebrew word in the Old Testament that's um, sometimes translated as slave, but more often translated as servant. And it is this idea of a bonded servant, rather someone who is subservient to others because of the work they have to do, because of their position in society, rather than that they're part of a class of people, rather than the shameful slave trade that the British Empire used to be involved in and other nations were involved in. It's not so much talking about that in the Old Testament as someone who has uh, found themselves in a situation in life where they end up as a servant. And in fact, everyone in ancient society was a servant of someone. The king was a servant of whichever god they worshipped in that society. And then everyone else in a sort of hierarchy was a servant of the king. It's helpful to realise that. They didn't have a category that we, we now have of the free. No one was free, not the king, not anyone else in the hierarchy, which means you could be a servant with servants under you. Archaeologists have found a, found a seal, which may come up on the screen if the technology has uh, uh, caught up. Um, there you go. It's a seal um, uh, used for uh, sealing letters uh, with wax. And uh, if we spoke Hebrew, we could read uh, simply on it, it belonged to Shema, the servant of Jeroboam. Now, clearly, he's a high-up person. He has his own seal. A bit like having a coat of arms nowadays. It's a very nice seal, isn't it? Yeah, it's got a lion on it and everything. What that indicates is that someone who was a servant had status because he was a servant of the king. Now, many of the situations uh, that the Old Testament regulates, um, the reason uh, people ended up in slavery is very simple. Uh, you and your family um, would have been farmers, tenant farmers. You would have grown your own food. Um, that's kind of how everything worked, which meant if, you, if the crops failed, you ran out of everything. You had no savings. They, they didn't have banks and bank accounts, and they didn't have a welfare state. What were you going to eat? You've run out of everything. Now, your neighbour down the road might be merciful. In fact, the Bible commands people to be merciful to each other. They might be merciful, they might give you something to eat. But how long is that going to last for? Because they've got to look after their own family, haven't they? As, uh, uh, what have you got to offer? Well, the only thing you've got to offer if you've run out of everything is your future labour. 
And so what would happen is that people would sell their future labor, they would sell themselves into bonded servitude and pledge my future labor in exchange for food in the now. That's how it would work. And when you think about it like that, that's not so different from entering into an employment contract, is it? My future labor in exchange for the means, the money to buy food now. Anyway, we'll come back to that. I just wanted to flag it because our system is much freer, much better by the grace of God. But it's similar enough to be able to apply Bible principles across to our workplaces. We're going to get there. But before we do... Okay, that's an explanation of where this idea of servitude comes from in the Bible, how it operated. But we may still be troubled by the fact that the Bible permitted this at all. Does it mean that God approves of slavery and servitude? No, is the simple answer. It doesn't. A parallel example is really helpful. Uh, Jesus was asked about divorce by the Pharisees. Uh, who were coming to him and saying, well, you know, Moses permitted us to divorce our wives. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus' reply is a massive clue to how we should read the Old Testament and uh, this uh, question as well as any other question. He says to the Pharisees, it was because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but it was not this way from the beginning. So Jesus says, Anyway, if we're going to understand God's intentions, we need to go right back to the beginning, right back to the uh, start of Genesis, the first couple of chapters, because we see there God's original design and plan, and then it's only later that we get to the law and its regulations. Uh, A modern day example is um, the laws we have in this country and in many countries regulating gambling. So we have laws regulating how it operates, What that doesn't mean is that the people who wrote those laws think that gambling is a great idea that we should all be involved in. In fact, they've written the laws to try and put some limits on gambling. So too, says Jesus, with the Old Testament law on divorce. So too with the Old Testament law on servitude. It's not saying it's good. And if you go back to the beginning and see God's intention... It's for marriages to last. It's for people to enjoy an amazing world that he's made. It's not for slavery. It's for freedom and enjoying him and enjoying loving relationships with one another. But the law comes into a society and regulates something which is not good. So when you read something in the Bible and think, well, I don't, I don't think I'm particularly happy with that, Don't assume that God's necessarily happy with it either, unless he actually says he is. So what about the New Testament? Why didn't Paul just tell slaves, listen, stand up for your rights? Why didn't he tell masters, free your slaves? Let's remember the situation. Christians were a persecuted minority with no power in the Roman Empire wasn't a democracy by any stretch of the imagination. Telling slaves to rebel would have ended up in them being executed. They'd all tried it in the days of Spartacus. You may have watched the film or the TV show. It hadn't gone so well. Well, why not tell slave owners to free their slaves? Well, the Romans were clever. They had laws on that. 
they had laws limiting any owner, any person who is a master in a household, from uh, freeing the uh, slaves. They couldn't just have people willy-nilly freeing slaves. The Roman Empire was built on the back of slavery. And so they set limits on, the ha- on how many people could be freed by anyone. And if the slaves were under 30, they stripped them of their rights. So as we come to Ephesians, as we're doing now, we need to realize that the early church couldn't simply change the system because it, was, it wasn't working and it was, it was not God's plan. They couldn't change the system, but they could do something incredibly radical, which is what they did. Because the early church, when they gathered, they said, love each other deeply from the heart. Love each other as Christ has loved you. And if we get now to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The New Testament taught we are brothers and sisters together in the same family, God's family, and we must treat each other that way. Do you see how radical that is? In a culture where everyone's got a position and everyone's saying, well, you're a master, you're a, you're a servant. Well, yeah, okay, you've got to do what you... Well, no, no, love each other. Submit to each other. You're brothers and sisters together. And more than that, they instituted a kissing campaign. Yeah? That at the end of some of the letters Paul wrote, this is at the end of 1 Peter as well, greet each other with a holy kiss. And I saw some surprised faces. I was trying to surprise you. Um, and you're thinking, well, hang on a minute. Yeah, yeah, but people did greet each other in that way, didn't they, in those days? They kissed each other, and people, some people still do, don't they? It depends on which culture you come from. Yeah, but it wasn't part of ancient culture for a slave to kiss a master and for a Jew to kiss a Gentile that as far as the Romans thought about it was totally scandalous they've been really careful to put in all these boundaries all this hierarchy in place you can't have you can't have people treating each other just you know loving each other it's immoral it's like it's like fraternising across the ranks in the army. You know, we, we, we've got this system for a reason. You don't go and just sort of hang out together and all be friends together and all love each other deeply. No, 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 no. We can't have that. You see, I'm trying to sort of imagine how it would have gone down in their culture. This was incredibly radical. To kiss across ethnic groups, to kiss across all the social boundaries. Who do you kiss? You kiss your family. You kiss your brothers, your sisters, you're, you're bonded together in this way. This is why they said, greet one another with a holy kiss. They didn't just use the language of family. They lived it and acted accordingly. And they brought together all different people that Roman society kept apart. So the early church couldn't abolish Roman slavery. They weren't in a political position to do that. But what they could do was even more radical. They could start a new society, a society with its own rules, a society free from sin, a society where everyone was actually a slave and a servant of the best master in the world, Jesus Christ, the one who actually became a servant to serve us, to bring us back to God. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 2, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. 
So that's what happened in the early church. They began to live out God's original design, the, the one there at the beginning of everyone uh, equal and in harmony with one another. And as they did that, in the society within the church, they sowed the seeds for the transformation of the wider society, the unraveling of inequality. And actually the seed they were sowing 2,000 years ago is the one that has grown and bore fruit and eventually led to the freedoms that we're enjoying right here, right now, in Western culture that has been so influenced by this flow through the church into wider society that took millennia to grow. That's the background to Ephesians chapter 6. Being part of God's new community transforms everything. Chapter 5, verse 2, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Chapter 5, verse 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what that means is everything in your life and in my life is now worship. Whether you're CEO of a FTSE 100 company or whether you're slaving away on a zero hours contract, everything work included, work especially because we do so much of it in an average week, is an opportunity for worship and a chance to be like Jesus. And the key to work being transformed for us, whatever kind of work conditions we're in, is um, verse 8. Seeing that, knowing that God sees it all, and verse 8, he will reward everyone for whatever good we do, whether they are slave or free. So God sees it, and it means that I, you, we, whatever we're doing in the week, will want to work for God's eyes only. I think that's the key. That's the thing to remember when it comes to uh, uh, getting up and getting in tomorrow morning to whatever you'll be doing. To work for God's eyes only. To remember that work is now worship. And that's so key, it's so transformative, because most of us don't have a choice about whether we work. We have to work to pay the bills. Or else we, will, we won't have anywhere to live, we won't have anything to eat. Even when we don't enjoy work, we have to go and we have to take orders. But do you see what a difference it makes? Realizing ultimately you are working out and working in the sight of uh, uh, what God wants in your life as you choose in the decisions you make in the workplace to be like Jesus. Verse 5, obey your earthly masters just as you would obey Jesus. You're saying, okay, you know, there are some things that my boss wants me to do. I wouldn't choose them, but do you know what? I'm just going to imagine, in fact, I'm going to know because Jesus actually is Lord of everything and even of my boss. And so, okay, I'm going to live this out knowing that actually Jesus will see it and Jesus will say, well done. Verse 5, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, knowing, verse 8, the Lord will reward everyone. So I don't know about you, um, if someone says, who do you work for? How do you, just, how do you answer that question? Next time someone asks you, and I don't know whether you work for a garage or for the council or in a school or working to bring up a family, the answer actually for all of us can be the same. I mean, you choose your moment if you said this, but you say, well, actually, I work for Jesus. We work for his eyes only. It makes such a difference in our work. Uh, two centuries ago, the great London preacher Charles Spurgeon asked someone working as a maid, 
what evidence is there in your life that you've become a Christian? Sounds like quite a kind of stern question, doesn't it? Uh, her answer was very uh, savvy. She said, I now sweep under the mats. Just thought, yeah. Not just round them. Because she knows that Jesus sees her work. And the same is true today. Wholehearted work will mean that you'll do things even when people don't notice them because you know that Jesus notices this. Now, of course, the issue is in the workplace. You will get feedback. You will know your boss's opinion. Um, and uh, hopefully, if you've got a good boss, you'll get some affirmation of the good stuff and some points for improvement. If you've got a bad boss, then you will... Um, well, you know, you've just got to choose, uh, choose your moment, haven't you? But we don't get that immediate feedback from, from Jesus in the, quite the same way, do we? We get his perspective from the Bible. And actually, also talking to Christian friends, it's one of the roles of church, isn't it? Is to say, well, hang on a minute, we've got a group of people reading the Bible together here. You know, what kind of, what, I was facing this dilemma at work, we will share with each other. And we'll get from each other a kind of a bit of experience, a bit of wisdom, a bit of understanding and insight to say, yeah, okay, actually, yeah, that's what God says, isn't it? That's the right thing to do. It, it's, it's less immediate than getting feedback from the workplace, but it's much more important what Jesus thinks. Because one day we're all going to stand before Jesus and give an account of our lives, and our bosses are too. And that, you see, that limits your obedience to your boss. Obedience to Jesus comes first, so if your boss asks you to do something illegal or immoral, you will respectfully explain, do you know what, I can't do that because I want to please uh, Jesus. I want to be a good worker, but uh, I live my life for him. And actually, I don't think we should be doing that as a company. You might have the courage to say. The main thing here to take away is this mindset that actually the whole of life becomes worship. And maybe we take away as well the prayer. Fill me with your Holy Spirit for tomorrow morning, Lord. For the week ahead. As I face the challenges I face. But what if the boots on the other foot? What if you're the boss? You give more orders rather than take them. Well, verse 9. Masters, treat your slaves, your employees, in the same way. Notice the language of quality there. Treat them in the same way. With the same respect that Jesus tells uh, them to treat you. You see, the boss, too, is to work for God's eyes only. And particularly, he or she needs to be aware of being accountable to God. The verses are very radical because slaves and masters are twice spoken about as just totally on a level. In verse 8, the Lord will reward each one for whatever they do, whether slave or free. Verse 9, Jesus is both their master and yours. And so if you're in a privileged position at work, you're, you've got a team around you, perhaps a team where everyone has to bow and scrape to whatever you say, well, know as you carry out your responsibilities, you too will be judged by someone who doesn't show favoritism, who's not impressed by show and bravado and by a, a quick tongue and all those other things that other people might be impressed with, but someone who sees our hearts and can't be bought and can't be uh, blagged or charmed. So if you're someone's boss, use your authority well. Use that responsibility to see them flourish as well as to do whatever task uh, the uh, company has given you to do. Work for God's eyes only, not for money or status or promotion or influence. I've had the privilege um, of, seeing, of uh, seeing a couple of uh, church members here who uh, have authority in the workplace. Uh, um, 
seeing them at work. Um, uh, this was uh, a couple of years ago. I saw each of them. Um, and uh, I, I was just really impressed by both. The way that they were respected by the people who were working under them. Uh, because they clearly knew the names and not just the names, but they knew the sort of what's going on in the family for the people that they were responsible for. They cared for the people that, that they were to be a team leader for. And you could see from those that they were over in the workplace uh, a respect and uh, a real affection that I just thought, wow, this is, this is fantastic. This is what it's supposed to be uh, for uh, a Christian uh, who's got responsibility in the workplace. We want people to flourish if we have responsibility for them. So whether we mainly give orders or take orders, and however frustrating the average working week is, there is something good and God-given about work done in the right way. Work for God's eyes only. Because we know, verse 8, the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether slave or free.